Today we are in the end of chapter 1, closing out this first of four chapters of the book and looking at verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Listen as I read God's Word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Pray with me. Father, we are taken aback as we read these words of your servant Paul by the power of your Spirit as you place them here. Taken aback because our consideration of what it means to be followers of you and what that means for our daily walk with you sometimes is very sobering. Help us to understand more deeply what it means to have the gospel run deep in our lives regardless of our circumstances. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first couple of weeks, uh, we were in the first section of this letter. Paul was beginning the letter out, as you remember, a few weeks ago with a call out to this young church that was established in his missionary journeys in Philippi, and he called to them as partners in the gospel. Really called to them and so joyful and thankful for their partnership with him in establishing the church in that region and continuing to support him even as he was away from them now. And and so much thanksgiving he expressed as they sojourned uh, spiritually with him and continued to see the gospel spread. Then he moved on further in the middle of chapter one, challenging them to continue to advancing the gospel, advancing it no matter what, whether it be in life or in death, and his own personal struggle of, of wanting to be with the Lord in his presence fully and not having to deal with all that is in this world, <clears throat> but then knowing that his call was to continue to fulfill the mission God had given him in spreading the gospel in this, uh, on this earth. <clears throat> and he really express that fully with his heart to the church in Philippi. But today, he comes and he speaks about something that might be somewhat of a challenge to all of us, but particularly as we look at what I've entitled the message, Gospel Worthiness. If you look at the message title itself, you might want to take a step back because you might think, oh boy, Mike's going to tell us how bad we really are. I think you already know that. (laughs) I know that about myself, so I really don't have to hammer you on that uh, at all. 
But what I don't want you to misunderstand is when we talk about gospel worthiness, is we're talking that you might think we're talking about something that actually is not what you might assume. So let's start out by asking and answering the first simple question, what is gospel worthiness? As Paul has now challenged us with this thought, verse 27, he starts out by saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. First glance, again, it might seem that Paul is saying that the gospel worthiness is having a life spiritually, you and me, that our life is so spiritually and morally clean and pristine and free from sin and free from taint, tainting in any way, shape, or form spiritually that we're good enough for the gospel to then be effective in our life. And our relationship with God is now fruitful because we have brought to the table with the Lord our works of righteousness and our strengths and abilities that we have developed because of our spiritual aptitude. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sure. It's completely anti-gospel, though. Not that we should not strive to grow spiritually, to become, as Scripture commands us and Jesus says, become holy more every day like Jesus is holy. And yet... We don't do that in our own strength and abilities. <clears throat> For the gospel to be effective, it's not about bringing a clean life then for God to then meet us and bless us. Throughout the whole New Testament, even, as Paul writes many other letters to churches that he established, and he clearly states just the opposite of that line of thinking. The church in Galatia, chapter 3, he writes this, Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. No one, he says, is justified. No one is in a position of being justified before God because of a clean moral life. It just is not the way God relates to us. We do not make ourselves acceptable to God. When Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel itself, he's not saying, now conduct yourselves in a manner worthy so that the gospel will be received into your life. He's saying this, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel because of what the gospel has done for you, to you, in you, what Jesus himself is doing and has done for you and is doing in you right now. It's not an in order to or so that relationship. It is a because of relationship to the gospel that we can live in a manner that is worthy. Certainly, we're called to live in a manner that is evident that the living Christ lives in us. But that is because he's done that 
in us and for us. Being approved or accepted by God, now understand this, being accepted by God does not come free. You might say, wait a minute, I thought grace was free. Grace is not free. Grace costs a lot. But the key to the gospel is that you understand who paid the price. We can't pay the price for grace. Christ paid the price for grace. And that's the difference of understanding how we relate to God. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Power of the Gospel, says this, The truth is, God's approval does have to be earned. That is what Christ did for us. The difference between God's unconditional acceptance and the acceptance purchased for us by Christ is a massive difference. Failure to understand this leads to a critical misunderstanding of grace. A concept of grace that does not include our ill-deservedness and Christ's work for us will lead people down the wrong path of cheap grace. But a concept that does include our ill-deservedness and Christ's work for us leads us to gratitude for that grace, which leads to loving obedience. See, we understand we do not deserve, but we also understand that Christ has done all that is necessary. And an understanding and then receiving that and God giving us the eyes to understand and accept and embrace that amazing truth, we then have a heart that wells up with gratitude. We have a heart that wells up with thanksgiving. It should give that, emote that response. And then we want to follow him. We want to read his word and follow his scriptures. We want to yield ourselves when his Holy Spirit that lives in us gives us a direction to follow, a conviction on an issue in our life, something to understand and realize. That is the way the power, transforming power of God's grace works in our hearts. You see, the text says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conducting yourselves. It's also been translated, I saw this week, by one particular commentator as continue to exercise your citizenship. I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why he comes with that. Well, it brings out, of course, Paul's, if you read Paul's letters, but particularly even here in Philippians two, three, four times, continual referencing to a Christian's identity of where their home truly lies, where their citizenship truly is. Certainly Paul had a Roman citizenship, but his heavenly citizenship. And so when he would say, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, or if he would say, continue to exercise your citizenship, he would be saying, continue to exercise your citizenship in heaven now. Showing forth the reality of that citizenship, your identity, your belonging to your future, your eternal home in the here and now on earth and making that evident to all a watching world. Gospel worthiness is the fruit of our faith. It's the fruit that is born from the faith that we have been given. It's the overflow 
you see, of the power of the Holy Spirit in our soul. It's the overflow and working of God's Spirit in our hearts and minds. And it pours out of us, and it should be pouring into others, or at least getting all over them as it just spews from you, whether it be brothers and sisters in the church or those who do not know the Lord that you encounter throughout your day, your week, wherever you may go. It just comes out. It shouldn't be something you have to force out. It should just be there. If anything, we should at times struggle reining it in rather than trying to muster it up. It should be a continual working that comes out of us and then invades those that God places around us. Gospel worthiness is the fruits of our faith. Remember earlier in chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, when Paul said in verse 6, Now be confident of this, that he, that is Christ, who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will carry it on to completion. You see, the key here is that the grace of God comes upon us and changes us. Grace itself instructs us on how to live. The more we understand God's grace, it instructs and guides and gives us an understanding of how to live this life that we've been gifted, we've been given. Titus 2, Paul writes to Titus, and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, that is grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace teaches us all those things. So if we don't understand God's grace, we don't meditate on the grace of God reflect on it, try to grow in our depth of understanding of the grace of God's work towards us and His Son, and continue to understand the millions and infinite number of facets of this diamond called the gospel itself, we will then not be able to follow what Titus 2 says. We will not be able to say, to say no to the passions that tempt us. We will not be able to say no to ungodliness. We will not be self-controlled in the power of the Spirit. All the fruits, Galatians 5, of the Spirit, if you read them, we will struggle with even more greatly than we already do in the power of working of the God's Spirit because we're not continually deepening our understanding of how grace has come to us, how Jesus has done so much on our behalf. That's gospel worthiness in a nutshell. But then gospel worthiness living, as Paul writes here in our text, calls believers to stand firm against opposition. Verse 28, Paul says now, <clears throat> of course, Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for faith in the God of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Interesting. Who were those that they were frightened of? Who were the adversaries that Paul might be specifically referring to here in verse 28? Were they the Jewish uh, 
community there where the Philippians were, where Paul experienced? Or was it the pagans, those that were not part of the Jews? Certainly, it was pagan opposition. Look at verse 30. Paul says, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have, what was his struggle? He's in prison. <laughs> That's a pretty big struggle. He's in prison in Rome. And certainly, his opposition were those who put him in prison. That's the obvious opposition in Paul's life. And they knew that. They saw that. And he says, you saw what I've had and now here that I still am in prison. And so certainly the opposition was the, the pagans, those that weren't. But certainly in the region, there was a large Jewish population. Paul still found himself opposed at times greatly by religious zealots and those that were coming at him from uh, who, who, who held their position that he was not uh, a true follower of the one true God and that he was preaching a false um, doctrine. And so he, he struggled on both sides, both with the Jews and the Gentiles. And so when he talks about don't be frightened by those who oppose you, you could probably say it includes both. He certainly was experiencing opposition from both. And probably those believers in Philippi that he was writing to had experienced opposition at times from both in their lives. Here's a spiritual principle that we have to take away from this thought. If we are living out our faith, as Paul was encouraging those in Philippi to do, living out our faith with diligence and with zeal of heart, we not might, but we will we will eventually find opposition. Mark it down. You probably already have. But if not very much, you will. The more you continue to diligently live out your faith in this world, you will find opposition. Whether it be at work, whether it be with your boss or your employees or wherever you are in, your, uh, in, your, in the marketplace, whether it be in your family, immediate or extended family, whether it be with friends, friends you've had since high school or friends you have now or friends you've recently developed in your neighborhood, in your social, social circles, whatever and however you want to describe your relationships you will eventually find opposition if you're putting your faith on the line and if you're following God's call to follow him. It just is inevitable. It has to be. Why? Why does it have to be? Well, Jesus said it. He told us that we will struggle in this world. We will be persecuted. We will find opposition. You see, the world is not in favor of what Jesus is all about. The world does not desire the things of God. It does not put the things of God as first place, as priority. Everything about the world is about the world, and about what it wants, about what it desires. It has no desire to place the things of God as first. And so when we seek to place God in our life in a place of position of priority, of utmost importance, 
and we seek to follow and worship him as our sole savior and king, we will find opposition. You will find places where those oppose that desire in your life and as you apply it and live it out. Titus, again, chapter 2. In everything, Paul says, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, the soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Right there it is. So that those who oppose you, not so that you might, those who will oppose you. It's absolutely considered a done deal that we will have opposition in this world for our faith. Maybe you're right now in the midst of some opposition, some struggle, something coming against you, someone coming against you, against your faith, against that which you believe, against the values that you have as a follower of Christ. What will you do? How will you take on that opposition? Paul says, standing firm is accomplished by the power of God's Spirit in unity with other believers. How do we deal with opposition? He tells us, we stand firm in the power of God's Spirit, the Spirit of God, His power, as we stand together in unity with other believers. That is important. Verse 27, he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about your absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's the one spirit. The only power we have to stand spiritually against any opposing forces, any opposing people in our life that desire nothing of God is in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the only power source you really have is the Holy Spirit living in you, working and defending and protecting you against any oppositions, going before you, going ahead of you, blocking, defending, moving, attacking, every aspect you can think of militarily, the Holy Spirit has your back. The Holy Spirit is there, is working, is doing 24-7 all the time, even when you do not see the Spirit working. He's working, he's working, he's moving, he's acting, he's diligent. He never rests, he never sleeps, he never grows weary, even when you cannot stand. Open your eyes, keep them open. He's working, he's moving, he's aggressively pursuing everything for the benefit to glorify the Father and to edify you, the, son, the child of the King. That Spirit does work all the time. When Jesus was near, at the near end of his ministry on this world, he knew that his physical absence would leave a significant void with the disciples and those whom he had discipled. He instructed them regarding the one that would never leave them. In John 14, he says, ESV, I like the way it reads, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus said, you have this helper, this comforter, this advocate on your behalf. It is the Holy Spirit. He will be with you always, 
always he will be with you. The Holy Spirit leads, guides, instructs, assures, encourages, and prompts every Christian to follow God's revealed will in Scripture. And even at times prompts us to follow God's unrevealed will that we don't read in Scripture. He will prompt you to move in a direction that you may not have a chapter and verse that says do this exactly, but you know the Spirit of God is moving you towards it. And you follow step by step until he directs you otherwise. Even if everything else around you is saying otherwise and does not seem to make sense, we must be careful to have wise counsel around us. But often when the world says that makes no sense, it is the wisdom of God making sense. And we must be ready to yield ourselves to what the Spirit is doing rather than what those without the Spirit give guide us or instruct us verse 27 paul says stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel you see the holy spirit indwells you and me and he builds us up but he builds us up together we stand firm in the holy spirit and the power of the spirit together as one there's a unity you don't stand alone We as believers are called, are given a community to stand with. That's the church. So when someone says, yeah, I have church every Sunday morning in front of my TV. I listen to the TV, whatever whatever name they want to say they watch on TV. That's my church. If you've ever said that, I don't mean to offend you. But I want to say, testimony after testimony in Scripture would say that that approach to what the church is, just you can't find it in the Scripture. That's, it may be a, a convenience of modern technology, but it is, not, it is not an understanding of what the community of the body of Christ is all about. You miss out on so much with that approach to what the church is all about. Paul says we strive together as one for the faith. The church is designed for believers to strive together, not apart. The church was designed as Christ being the head for us to strive together, not apart. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, we are being built together as a a spiritual house. We are the stones, as Peter says, and we are being placed exactly where we should be in the house that God is building his church. And we fulfill a special opportunity in the church. All of us, we're there as the vital part of God's household. We're called to work together, to serve together, to love together, not against one another, and certainly not apart from one another but in harmony with, with each other, seeking to, do, to have relationships with one another as side by side we are together in unity. We must fight the anti-gospel messages of our culture. Rugged individualism is what our Western American heritage tells us. Have an independent spirit. Be your own man. These are woven into the depth, deep fibers of our American value system. 
and we value that greatly as Americans. Nothing wrong with valuing a spirit that works hard and has a good work ethic. God gives us work as a gift. But when we begin to view ourselves as those who do things on our own, we don't really need anyone else because I can do it on my own. There's a danger in that because we begin to lose humility. We begin to lose the understanding that we are truly needy. Needy not just for God, but in need of His people that He gives to us to be with us together, loving and serving together. As followers of Christ, we all have plenty of opposition in our lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil every day come at us, upon us, against us, and we have to continually struggle against them. Whenever we have the opportunity to build up another follower of Christ, we cannot miss that opportunity. God gives you people every day that pass in front of you. The only question is, are you paying attention? He gives believers that cross your path, certainly unbelievers that cross your path, whether it be the checkout at Walmart or wherever you go, or are you paying attention? Are you aware and watching? Are you looking for those possible divine appointments that God has been trying to use you for in spreading the grace that you already know is so wonderful for your own spirit. Several days ago, uh, I uh, was uh, struggling because we, we have the big event coming up for our, uh, our, at our home, and we wanted to, to be sure the outside of the house was ready for the big egg hunt and so forth. And so one thing I needed to get done was to um, get some pine straw after uh, many, many months of not having it laid on the property and so uh, on, at our house there. And I have a pretty big area for some pine straw. So um, I had been given a card several months ago that a guy, I guess, went through and gave his business card out. And so I called it because it looked like a really good price. He wrote on the back of the card. And so I, I had him stop by. And he finally stopped by. And when he did, um, he had a, a crew of men in the back of his truck. And uh, this one guy jumped out, ran up to the door and knocked on the door. And I opened the door. And he goes, yes, sir, you called about us doing some pine straw? He goes, I'm the foreman of this group. And uh, we'd like to do it for you. I go, Okay. Well, let's talk about it. He goes, okay, what do you need? And so I described it to him, and I said, one thing I would need, I, I really need to get a few of these bushes really pruned back because I want to do that first before we just do some pine straw. If you could help me out with that just a little bit before we then go. And he goes, no problem, we'll be right back. I have to go talk to the boss. So we ran back to the, to the, to the truck, and the guy's sitting in the cab. He's the boss, I guess. And he talks to the boss, and he comes back and says, we can do it. And I said, okay, how much? He told me price. I said, okay, that sounds really reasonable. Let's do it. He said, okay. So he went back to the boss, and sure enough, the whole truck load of people left. And he was standing there. I was like, you're going to do this, right? Yes, sir. Who? Me. Okay. He had no tools. He had nothing. I'm like, I'm not sure what's happening. Is this, am I like in a, a reality TV show? or uh, is, there, is there cameras in my yard somewhere? I couldn't figure it out. Um, so I said, okay. Uh, do you need to borrow some clippers or something to do it? He goes, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, be right back. So I went and got some clippers, came back, and he started to work. How's that look? And then he began to tell, he goes, yeah, he goes, they always do this. They go and leave me to do all the work. 
And I go, oh, they do. He goes, yeah. I said, well, and his name was Jamie. I said, Jamie, that's not real good. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, we all live four hours from here. We drive up here because we, 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 we get people up here who are willing to do the work, get, give us the work. So they still had a four-hour drive back to South Georgia. At this point, it's already 6 p.m., and they haven't even begun the pine straw. I'm thinking, there's no way. But sure enough, he started to work. He said, yeah, I get paid 70 bucks a day. That's it. He goes, no matter what I do or what they do, it doesn't matter. He goes, the money I'm doing, what I'm earning to do right now, he goes, it goes to the boss. I won't see a dime of it. I go, well, that's not, that's not real fair, though, is it? He goes, that's the way it is. I go, okay. So I went inside, and God put on my heart to get something for him, and I walked out, and I handed him some money, a little more than what he would make in a day. And I, I said, now, take this. He goes, thank you. He puts it in his pocket. And I kept talking to him, and I said, Nate, you realize what that was? Yes, sir, thanks for paying us up front. I go, no, Jamie, that's for you. That's not paying you for this work that goes to your boss. He goes, huh? I go, no, that's for you, Jamie. And he pulled it out, and he looked at it, and he counted it. And he said, why'd you do that? I said, because God's blessed me in my life with an amazing reality that I wanted to share a little bit of blessing with you. I said, Jamie, I gave it to you now. You've hardly done anything in my house yet because I want you to know this money is not for what you do here. That right there is just for who you are. He looked at me. He couldn't say anything. And he said, no one's ever said that to me before. He said, I was abused when I was 13. He said, see my wrists, those scars, because I tried to take my life just a year ago. He goes, I, I slept outside a dumpster, dumpster last night. I don't have a home. He goes, I just hope I can get some money to get a motel room. And then he, gone and he shared his life with me. I just listened. And he kept clipping and kept clipping for two hours. He never stopped. Two hours later, the group comes back. And they begin to do the pine straw. And it was a motley crew, let me tell you. Very interesting group of guys. But I noticed as they started to do, and Jamie was trying to tell everybody what to do, he got real frustrated and upset with particularly one guy that was not doing it the way, basically, he thought it needed to be done. And they were trying to do the work, and it was obviously dark at this point. And I could tell that this guy had a really hurt leg. He was probably in his late 40s, and he was really in pain. And so I went inside, got a bottle of Tylenol and a glass of water, and I came out and I gave it to him. I said, take three of these and keep that bottle. And he goes, thank you. And, as, and I looked over in the corner of my eye, and I looked at Jamie, and his eyes caught mine, and he kind of, his head went down. And I knew that he knew what I was doing was what he needed to be doing because he professed to be a, believer, be a believer. He said, I came to know the Lord about a year ago. And I could tell the way he had treated one of his co-workers. He saw the way that probably needed to be treated. And his deme demeanor changed, and he no longer acted the same way for the next hour to that co-worker of his. Because, you see, when we have opportunity to, to engage someone wherever they are spiritually, and we have a chance to support and encourage another believer, we need to not miss those opportunities, no matter who it is or where it might occur. 
God gives us divine appointments. We must be ready and willing to recognize them. Gospel worthiness calls us to stand firm together in the power of the Spirit. But also, it calls us at times even to suffer. Look at verse 29. Paul writes, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You see, Paul was writing this very letter from where? Prison. He was not just spewing some platitude or heroic thoughts about Christianity that we all need to aspire to. Paul knew what it meant to suffer. He really knew what it meant to suffer. He spoke from a a place of understanding and experience. Suffering for Christ is a gift intended for a greater purpose, Paul tells us in verse 29. Suffering for Christ is a gift, and it's intended for a greater purpose. For it's been granted to you, verse 29, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What does Ephesians chapter 2 tell you? You've, You've probably memorized the verse. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. What's the gift of God? Faith is a gift of God given to you. So when Paul says... It's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. He's saying, just as faith is a gift, it's been given to you in the same way suffering has been given to you. Here's the problem with that. It's very foreign to our way of thinking, to think of difficulty, trials, suffering, opposition as a gift being given to us? We don't see it that way. Now understand, suffering in itself is not a gift. Just suffering in this world, that's not necessarily a gift that God, just all suffering is a gift of God. That's not what Paul's saying. But when we do suffer and are persecuted for the sake of Christ... That is something he gives to us, to his children. That is a gift he gives and bestows upon us when we do it for Christ, for his sake. In the same way that we're granted this gift of faith, we're also granted the opportunity to face ridicule, exclusion, persecution, and suffering because of our faith. Our problem is that we view all these type of things as either coming from the evil one or coming from God as punishment for us as his children. That's how we view those things when they happen. But no, God says, if it's for my, child, for my son's sake, it is given to you, granted to you, that you would receive it for his sake and view it as such. Paul saying that God entrusts these difficult things to his children with great forethought and great care. He does not hand out suffering for Christ flippantly. He doesn't just place it out there in a way that no one, that he does not care or is not consider of how it's being received or intended to be used. God always has a greater purpose in mind 
for our oppositions and suffering for Christ's sake. Every time you're suffering for Christ, you're struggling because of your faith for Christ. It is done for an intended greater purpose. Every time. There's not one instance that you will encounter for Christ that is not intended for his greater purposes, for his kingdom to be expanded, for his mission to be fulfilled, for himself to be glorified more greatly than he was before. Not once, not an instance. The only way that our lives can be gospel-worthy is if we have placed our trust and confidence not in our worthiness, but in his worthiness. That's how we come to understand what it means to be worthy of the gospel. We receive his worthiness, his accomplishments that make us now acceptable to the Father.